Hey, it's Martine. Quick message before we start today's show. I know that I talk to you a lot about subscriptions and why they are so important to our show. But this week, we are really excited because The Post is doing something extra special and offering a deal to people like you. Right now, you can get an all-access digital subscription to The Washington Post that will last for 12 weeks. You'll get our groundbreaking interactive stories, the most in-depth breaking news, our fantastic well-being and climate coverage, and so much more. And all you have to do is pay 99 cents every four weeks. If you already subscribe, thank you so much. It is the one way to support the work you hear on this show. And if you know someone who would love a subscription, you can't beat this price. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Black Friday, or you can find the link to the steal in our episode description. Okay, here's the show. I know you joke about getting a phone, but when do you actually think kids should get a phone? I actually, ki- I actually think kids should get a phone around the age of middle school, because I think that's when you get a bit more responsibility. And I see a lot of middle schoolers walking around town. And I think when they're, like, walking around town, a phone can keep them safe, Hmm. because there are a few things on the phone that can keep them safe. So maybe middle school is the age, I believe. Okay, listen to you. Uh, I want to see what some... Experts say, and my colleague did some reporting about this. Yeah, I know. (laughs) You told me. (laughs) This is Renita Jablonski. She is the Post Director of Audio, and she is talking with her kid about a big, ongoing debate happening in so many households about when kids should get a phone. Heather, did you know that I needed your help with this? I thought you might be in this position, actually, so I'm here to help. Renita wanted to know where the experts land on this question. And Heather Kelly is a tech reporter for The Post who has been looking into exactly that. And I work on our help desk, and so we always try and help people with with real problems they're having with technology or things they want to do better or differently. What Heather learned in her reporting is that it is basically inevitable that kids will find their way online. So how can parents and other adults think about introducing kids to technology thoughtfully? And even for those of us who don't have kids, it turns out that there's actually a lot that we can learn from this expert advice. We're talking so much about what we need to teach kids and show them what to do and and help them be better at technology. And I, I think sometimes we overlook the fact that we need to be a lot better at technology. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, November 22nd. If you're starting your holiday shopping this week and thinking about whether and when your kids might be ready for their own phone, this conversation is for you. And later in the show, we also have a segment on the popularity of what's called brown noise, this ambient sound that some people say improves their concentration. But first, here's that conversation with Renita and Heather about smartphones. What was most interesting to me is I've been covering screen time and kids and phones since before, but especially during the pandemic. And the wind has really changed. Hmm. I think early in the pandemic, we were all in a bit of a pickle uh, in our homes with our children and our jobs at the same time. And the traditional screen time rules really fell away. Kids started learning to use these things much younger. And I don't think you can go back on that shift. And so we're seeing a much younger age that's kind of approved for adoption by experts than we used to have. There was this group called Wait Until Eighth, 
there are some experts behind it, and they're like, wait until eighth grade to give your kids phones. And now I'm hearing more like 10 to 14, 10 to 12 years old, as they're getting into middle school, start giving them some of that responsibility so they can learn about it, so they can sit with you and become more fluent in the technology that is going to be a huge part of their lives very soon. I imagine some people hearing that think that that sounds very young. And by some people, I mean me. Um, yikes. And and it's funny, I mean, I get what you're saying, but but there is something that just feels really extreme about that. Why 10? I mean, that early being potentially a, a way to, or a point in which to introduce something like a phone. And I say something like, because now there are, smartwatches and smartwatches, especially for kids and, and that kind of stuff too. And I think that's actually an interesting point. We're not, we're not hearing, hey, give your kid a $900 fully unlocked iPhone in the fifth grade or the sixth grade. There are all these different kinds of phones and wearables and different technology and ways to even lock down a used smartphone. So you're only giving them a little bit of that access. You're easing them into it. I actually talked to this woman named Catherine Perlman. She is a clinical social worker. She works a lot with families dealing with with screens and trying to figure out their own paths. A very interesting thing she pointed out is that if you wait until your kids are tweens, especially teenagers, and you try and guide them through this, you try and sit down and say, hey, let me teach you how to text. Let me have access to your text messages. The answer is going to be just like a giant eye roll. If we wait till 14, you know, 13, 14, 15, kids have one foot out the door. They're really into their peer group. Um, they haven't had a chance to practice, you know, gaining skills in terms of etiquette and managing social media. And um, they're not listening to their parents at that point anymore. They're listening to their friends. 10, 11, 12-year-olds are really listening to their parents. And parents can mentor and monitor slowly and release the reins as the kids get older. When you talk to kids about this younger, when they're still... They're still kind of into us, you know, like they want to listen to their mom and dad and they they think we're cool. Obviously, they're wrong, but they don't know that yet. They're more willing to take all the training that is really necessary to be able to responsibly have this kind of technology. You can't just give them a device and hope it works out. You need to lay the groundwork. You need to teach them about etiquette, what to do if you come across pornography, how to avoid strangers, why never to post your body on the internet. There's so many conversations to have, and the younger you start them, it just seems like it's much more likely to stick, and they'll actually listen to you. When it comes to the assessment of when a kid is ready to have this kind of technology in their hands, how does that happen? How do you know? Oh, it's so complicated. I mean, even my own kids are so different from each other. Uh, that's kind of a funny thing about pick an age when you give a kid a phone. It is just entirely dependent on your child. So you're going to look and see if if they're starting to show signs of the kind of responsibility that means they could take this on. Are they doing chores? Are they doing well in school? Uh, if they already have video games, are they okay when you're when you tell them screen time is over? It's time to put it away. And if not, if they're already struggling with things like screen time, then maybe it's not time to add more screens to their life. Uh, if they're struggling emotionally in some ways, you know, maybe this isn't something they need to have right now. If they're, if they're dealing with friend group issues, bullying, hmm. y- you might want to ease them into having more ways to connect with, with kids from school online. 
to, to protect them a little bit. It is just so entirely dependent on the child and at what age they're maturing and when they're starting to show some signs of being ready for what's essentially a very big responsibility, like getting a car. I know that, uh, and I was reading some of the comments after your story published, you know, and there are some people on there that said, you know, come on, why do, why do kids even need a phone? What are some of the more practical reasons that, that you heard about? I know, you know, for me, as we give uh, more freedom to walk over to another kid's house in the neighborhood and, and things like that, um, I, I can't help but wonder, wouldn't it be nice to even send a text message to say, hey, are you okay? You said you were going to be home at 5.30. It's 5.45, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. All these devices have something built in that I think is actually the killer feature that we don't bring up as much is it's GPS tracking. They are little location devices. We are tagging our children in, in the nicest way possible so we can always tell where they are. And that's something our parents didn't have. And especially maybe if you're a child of boomers, like they never really knew where we were and the news had to remind them that it's 10 p.m. Like, do you know where your kids are? And parenting nowadays, I think we're much more aware of safety and security, and it just feels so good, especially if your kid is is going to school and back on their own. If they're commuting anywhere, if you're you know in a divorced family and they have multiple households that they're between, where you can just check and see where they are. And I think that's the biggest reason I've heard from parents that a kid might have one of these devices on the younger side. And then I know that there's also like, should we know? Do we need to know where they are at every any moment? And that's another interesting question of, like, what age do you start to dial back these things? Um, and it's funny because kids are so used to having their location tracked, as I've actually heard from teenagers and college kids who willingly use apps like Life360 hmm. to share their location with their parents because it's sort of a safety thing. And their parents share their location with the kids, too. Just everybody kind of knows where everybody else is, and it's not considered, like, uh, a creepy thing. People aren't looking too much, hopefully. Uh, but it's a, a peace of mind, I guess, for everybody in the family. In terms of the baby step kind of products that are out there, of course, companies are fully, you know, seizing on where parents' heads are with so much of this stuff, The all the layers of concerns with this. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things out there now, like I think we were referencing early, uh, earlier, rather, like a you know, a smartwatch, and I'm doing air quotes here, where you can text or call a very limited number of approved people, and that's about it. And maybe it tracks your steps. I think there are companies like um, Gab and Verizon has one called Gizmo. What is your reporting on this stuff revealing about those types of products? Uh, parents and the people who sort of track these things, they're they are big fans of them for a certain age range. Uh, there's also Pinwheel, the Gab. There's a bunch of very locked-down products. The easiest way, if you're ever wondering which one to get, go to whoever your, your cell provider is, if it's AT&T and Verizon, and look on their site, and they usually carry ones that they can put onto your plan uh, so you're not having to navigate getting them their own little cell plan. Uh, and they're they're great for younger kids learning to do this. Try and give a 14-year-old one of these, and you're going to have some difficult conversations. I mean, it's it's peer pressure. It's what kids are doing at school around them. And uh, it, sometimes it's easy for parents to dismiss that. 
like, I don't care if you look cool or not, uh, but it is it is important to them and to their social development that they don't feel too much like outcasts. I mean, don't be manipulated, but, you know, take it into account when you're deciding. Uh, but for like 10-year-old, 12-year-old, those are really great starter devices. Um, one reason I personally like give my kids locked down old iPhones is that I understand them already. I'm not learning a new device I can troubleshoot it. I can use parental controls. I can connect us. And I just, I feel weirdly like I have a lot more control than if it was an entirely separate ecosystem and operating system and and piece of hardware. Okay. But then, of course, parental controls only go so far. And... We all know the stories of kids finding their way around things. What, um, how, how does one deal with that? If you're at the point where where you say, "Okay, I think we're ready to introduce this," how do you set the ground rules? How do you communicate the expectations? Um, how do you try to make it work? It's so many little conversations. That's what's wild to me about talking to kids. Is I thought you would sit down and have the talk about something, they hate that. So what you do is you sort of work (laughs) it into everyday conversations and it's constant and you don't do it once. You, You bring it up regularly. You ask them questions. How are you doing? How are you feeling about your phone? What are you seeing your friends are up to? Uh, it's, it's going to go until, until they're grown up. So those conversations are important. And what you want to do with these conversations is get them ready For those inevitable times, they get around parental controls, or they have a friend who has a phone that can get the whole internet. It's going to happen. It's it's physically impossible to stop your kids from, like, eventually seeing something like pornography on the internet. And you want to give them the tools to know how to process it. You want them to trust you enough that they can come tell you about it. So parental controls are very useful. Kids are so smart. And we are not as smart as they are when it comes to getting around these things. I've heard stories of kids at school offering their services and mm. they'll get the other kids to pay them. And they'll like, like to, to like hack their to hack their, their parental controls. Ugh, I love kids. I feel like weirdly warmed by that, like little little baby entrepreneurs. Um, so, I mean, it's going to ha- just assume they'll get around them eventually. But that doesn't mean don't use them. You should also make sure they know what's turned on, especially if you're monitoring them. Never monitor a kid without them knowing that's happening. If we're going to talk about kids and phones, we obviously have to talk about grownups and phones. Uh, It is so difficult more and more uh, to model good behavior. And we can have all the rules and all the parental controls in the world. But if we're on our phones at the dinner table or when we're supposed to be engaging with somebody, our kids are going to think that that's okay. What do the experts advise about that? The experts all agreed that one of the biggest problems with the boundaries that kids have and that the parents give them is they have their phones at night. They have them in their room, and they all recommend taking the phone away from them at night. And I heard that and I thought, I really want somebody to take my phone away from me at night. That's genius. Mm-hmm. Put it in a different room. I discussed this in depth a little bit with Catherine Perlman, and it, it made me reflect a little bit on my own behavior, but I really liked what she had to say. Think of the kind of role model that you are because our kids are watching. 
And the sad part is that our kids are feeling disconnected from us in ways that we don't even realize because we're averting our eyes, we're scrolling, um, they're modeling their behavior after what we're doing. And so I think it's really important for parents to set good guidelines for themselves and for their kids. We're also learning to manage our digital lives. And um, I just want parents to think more about what messages they're sending to their kids. And that's another example of like modeling good behavior. Read a book. I got a Kindle specifically because I want my kids to see me. I'm, I'm reading, and it's not just me looking at Twitter or TikTok on my phone. I, I want them to understand the difference of why I'm ignoring them in that moment, um, and it's probably for a trashy book and <laughs> not work or social media. And we'll all sit around and read together on the couch. They don't know what you're doing on your phone. They can assume it's it's anything, and so if you can... Put it away when you're around them and model good behavior and don't have it with you at night. That will teach them, I hope, some of their own boundaries. What have you learned from this reporting as you think about your own family and what really struck you through this? I was also surprised by the age thing. I didn't think it was going to be 10 and then I talked to these experts and it just made more and more sense to me. It doesn't mean I'll do it at that age, mm-hmm. but it did make me think I need to start having those conversations now, bringing it up, letting them know what I'm doing, talking about my own experiences. I sometimes bribe my kids in TikToks. I'm like, if you do your chores, we'll watch five TikToks of cats or llamas or something. And I, I'm trying to use it kind of to teach them how social media works on my phone. I'll tell them about the bad parts about social media and just give them these training wheels now. I think I wouldn't have had those conversations as much if I hadn't talked to all these people who pointed out that there's no way you can avoid it. What do you say? What do you tell them about the bad parts? We always tell kids about stranger danger. And I, I, I think part of it was letting them know that there's strangers online, that you never know who somebody really is if you haven't met them, because they do play, they play Minecraft. And I don't, we've set up the parental controls so they can't talk to strangers. But, you know, eventually they might get a video game where they might come across somebody they don't know. Uh, So those were some of our earliest lessons. Like, you don't know who people are online, and you don't put information or photos of yourself online. And I'm also really careful what I put about them out there. And I get their permission. People think that's silly. But I'm like, can I put you on an Instagram story? And I'll let my kids say yes. One is like, yes, I want to be a YouTube star. But this is another great example. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he understands what YouTube is. I don't have any YouTube for them, but he knows that one day he just wants to be on the internet. And then the other kid's like, no, don't take my picture. Get away from me, paparazzi. I would like to be anonymous. And I respect that. And when I do put them online, I do disappearing stories. So it's not lingering out there. It's not going to be something they'll find later. And it's to a closed audience. When you raise these things to them, how do they respond? They're excited. I mean, they're hearing about something that they're excited to use and test out, and they want to learn all about it because it's still really it's still really new to them. And they get to spend time snuggled up on the sofa looking at a little screen with mom on a weekday, which is not something that normally happens. So they're, I think they're really into it at this age, which, again, they're very young. Um, if they were teenagers, I don't think they'd want to snuggle on the sofa with me. I hope they still will. Um, but definitely not to get, like, vaguely disguised lectures about safety on the internet. It's it's funny, we, we're talking so much about what we need to teach kids and show them what to do and, 
and help them be better at technology. And I, I think sometimes we overlook the fact that we need to be a lot better at technology, that we came to this late in life. Nobody trained us, and, and it's, we're always sort of trying to model this good behavior. I don't know about you. I fail a lot. I do, and they call me out. Oh, when yeah, I fail that's at the it. worst feeling. You know, I thought there were no phones at dinner. Is that really a work emergency? <laughs> is Kids are what savage. I heard the other day. The stuff's hard. It is. But I also, I just, I, I've, I've figured out when I come home, I put the phone kind of in this basket by the door. It never stays there long. We work in news. But I'm trying really hard to just put it down, walk away, be present with them have conversations and jokes and arts and crafts and also accept that I'm not perfect. I'm going to maybe hide it behind a loaf of bread while making dinner and they won't know unless they ever listen to this podcast. And then side note, there are times when craft time turns into making cardboard iPhones. So, Oh my God, they love making iPads and iPhones. It's so <laughs> cute. Isn't that so funny? Wow. See, they all do it. I feel a little better there. Heather Kelly, thank you so much. Absolutely. I hope I hope this helps and that and your kids your kids are going to be fine. It's going to be great. Heather Kelly reports on technology for the Post. Renita Jablonski is the director of our audio department. This segment was produced by Maggie Penman. After the break, we're going to dive into the differences between types of noise: white noise, pink noise, and brown noise. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Before we wrap today's show, we have one more thing from reporter Amanda Morris, who covers disability issues. It's about brown noise. Over the summer, brown noise exploded on the TikToks and social media accounts of people who had ADHD and also people who had other conditions such as autism, anxiety, things like that. Um, but really, in the ADHD community, people talked about how brown noise was helping them focus, helping them to relax and calm down when they felt overstimulated, and helping them get their work done. I've listened to brown noise the past two nights in a row to help me fall asleep, and I've been out in like 15 minutes. That is unheard of for me. Did you hear that? That was the sound of my blood pressure dropping. That's the brown noise I was talking about in my last video, which is so much more calming than white noise. And so I looked into this a little further, and it turns out there is some research around this. So if you've never heard of brown noise before, that's totally okay. I had not heard of it either. But what you probably have heard of is white noise. So a lot of people have heard of white noise before because there's been a lot more research on white noise and how it pertains to our ability to sleep, to relax, to focus. White noise, to me, sounds like 
a TV that should have been turned off or like a really angry cat hissing at you. And then there is also something called pink noise. Pink noise doesn't include as much of a high frequency sound that white noise does. It's a little bit more pleasant. It sounds a little bit like rain falling on pavement in the city. And it just feels less like it's pressing on you. And now this is brown noise. Brown noise is like white noise and pink noise in the sense that it's a random, meaningless tone. But to me, it just feels so much more like grounded. Like earthy is the word I like to use, but it also reminds me of being on a plane. It kind of reminds me of like laying in your bed and like looking out the window at the trees, like moving in the wind. That's what it makes me feel like I'm doing, even if I'm not doing that. So why does brown noise or even white noise or pink noise help people focus, especially people with ADHD? ADHD is a condition in which people have trouble focusing and often get distracted and overstimulated. And for people with ADHD, there's a link with lower levels of dopamine in the brain. And this is probably why they are more easily distracted by things that they find interesting because they're constantly craving that dopamine. So one theory as to why white noise, pink noise, and brown noise might work to help focus people with ADHD is because its randomness is just stimulating enough to mimic the effects of dopamine in the brain. We don't know why this is happening, but that's one theory. Another theory as to why playing white noise or other similar noises might help people with ADHD focus is a theory called stochastic resonance. It's basically this idea that everybody has different levels of noise in their brain, and people with ADHD have noisier brains than others. For some reason, when you introduce additional noise to that, it actually quiets the internal noise. We don't know exactly why this might be happening, but... Some people think it has something to do with how humans evolved in a natural environment because a lot of these noises mimic natural sounds. So one of the best examples in the course of my reporting was a woman in Canada named Taylor Griffin, and she had been completely failing a class when she discovered brown noise. If I take Ritalin... I'm no matter what, I'm going to be a zombie for an hour, an hour or two. But if I listen to brown noise, I can focus for 30 minutes, do something else for 30 minutes, go back to focusing, and I can choose what I want to focus. She's just one of many people who said that it's really helped them with work, studying, getting things done, even things like getting chores done around the house. Some people said they were putting on brown noise just to like vacuum and do dishes. And some people with ADHD, they take medication, but they still don't get better grades in school because the medication doesn't always help with academic performance. It helps more with restlessness and activity level, not necessarily focus. And so rather than seeing brown noise as a cure-all, doctors say that brown noise is a tool that you can use. And like any tool, it's best when used in conjunction with other tools 
whether that's medication or other types of strategy for managing ADHD. You can listen to brown noise however you want, but the researcher I talked to who has done the most research on white noise has found it to be more effective when you listen to it through headphones because then you're doing additional masking of other sounds and you're really honing in on the white noise or the brown noise or the pink noise. But you might want to make sure you're in a more distraction-free environment. Oh, and doctors told me not to get so distracted by making a brown noise playlist that you don't do your work. Reporter Amanda Morris covers disability for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. And that's it for Post Reports. This episode was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins and Eliza Dennis. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.